Hey, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. This is Jake Wiskirchen, your host, and this is episode number 51. It's uh, it's a conversation with myself, because I'm the only one doing this today, <laughs> but it's, it's a conversation nonetheless about authenticity, and I hope you find it as enjoyable as I did uh, when you listen to it, as I did making it, because I just kind of, I, I kind of went on a, a little bit of a went into a fugue state, I guess, and, uh, and, and I just kind of went into the stream of consciousness about uh, my thoughts and beliefs about what authenticity is, how we get to be authentic, where it comes from, and so on and so forth. And I, I think that it's hugely important for one reason only, and that is that the more authentic you can be, the more at peace you can be. And it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks of your authenticity. That's a, that's a them issue. If you can be authentic and they have a problem with it, then that's a them issue, not a you issue. But discerning whether or not you're actually being authentic or you're just uh, ticking people off with your attitude or your behavior, that is probably a matter of debate, and it's something worth exploring. So before we kick this episode off, I wanted to share with you a concept called the analytic self. And the analytic self uh, comes from my, my good friend and mentor, Dr. Christian Conti. Check him out at drchristianconti.com, C-O-N-T-E is his last name. And the analytic self is something that we use in the counseling world whereby if you picture in your head you got a you got a counselor and a client and they're talking and the conversation's going back and forth well my analytic self if i'm the counselor is sitting in a third position almost like a triangle away from the two of us where the analytic self is a little a little ghost of me uh, sitting aside, and it's observing the conversation almost like a, a disinterested third party, like a video camera. And Except this is not just a video camera that's recording audio. It's recording audio and video and feeding it back to me. So, And it's coming in a very neutral way. So it's observing me, it's observing the client, it's observing the conversation, it's processing it and giving me feedback about what I say and how it lands on the client, what the client is doing with it. And then the whole time, I have to be understanding and mindful of where the client is so what they bring into the session their cultural factors their socioeconomic position uh, recent events in their life uh, the, the way they were raised uh, their their all their demographic information that, that might play into bringing them to where they are today and all that stuff so I have to be mindful of that and how our conversation is influencing that and influenced by that so that I can be the most effective communicator possible now with my analytic self in that conversation, I'm becoming a, a very good clinician because I want to meet the client where he or she is while giving them feedback that's relevant and not making it about myself. So this, this by the way, is why uh, counseling is very exhausting, I think. It's, it's not because I'm uh, artificially taking home people's stresses that are not mine to carry. It's because I'm mentally working so hard to understand every possible angle and aspect and dynamic of the conversation that my, my brain wears out. It's exhausting uh, if I'm doing it right. If I'm being lazy, you know, that doesn't happen all the time and I'm human. So, you know, it, it, sometimes I can get lazy or I can just be tired or I can be hungry. But the idea of the analytic self there is to, to be a good clinician. Now, the idea of the analytic self in practical life is uh, it works exactly the same, but it doesn't necessarily have to be clinical. So you could take this analytic self-concept and apply it in, say, Costco when you're looking around and you're, you're buying things. You can be 
uh, trying to understand how the marketers who are giving away the free samples are trying to get your attention with what they're selling. You can be evaluating price points. You can be looking at uh, how the price point impacts your ability to make a decision about whether or not you want to buy something impulsively. Uh, If you're buying impulsively, is it because you're hungry or because uh, those chips just look good or they bring you a good memory from before when you saw them at somebody else's barbecue? So this is the analytic self in in the real world. You can do it while you're driving. You can do it while you're working. You can do it while you're having conversations, certainly while you're having conversations with other people because you want to be anticipating where they are at all times, and that's the real spirit of yield theory anyway. But as far as developing one's own personal consciousness or, or authenticity, I think the analytic self is a great model. Now, I'm, I'm going to put up a, a YouTube video on the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel here uh, shortly about the, the analytic self and explain it a little bit more. It's a little bit easier to see on a dry erase board than it is me just talking about it. But if you can picture those those two circles in your head, you know, client and counselor, they're talking back and forth, but then uh, up above them maybe is uh, is the analytic self, and it's, and it's just observing the whole thing, giving feedback the entire time. To, to the counselor. That was that's what your analytic self could be doing for you. So uh, that all being said, uh, Zephyr Wellness is always the sponsor. That's the company I co-own with my uh, partner, Lindsay Bell. You can check us out at zephyrwellness.org. We just expanded. We have a new location in Sparks. We are pushing into uh, Lovelock, which is rural Nevada. Again, we're going to be working in the schools up there. And we are now the official clinical services provider for Safe Embrace, which is a uh, a, a safe place for people who are victims of domestic violence situations to go live for a while while they while they stabilize their lives, and we're we're very proud of that uh, opportunity to to go serve those folks. So, um, reach out to us info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org, and you can ask questions, and I'll work them into a future episode. But in the meantime, this is episode number fifty one. It's a discussion about authenticity and how we can become authentic. Enjoy. Are you authentic? How do you know? What does it mean to be authentic? What is authenticity? Do you even think about being authentic or considering it? Am I just making you crazy with all these questions? I chuckled a little bit there at the end, and I don't think I'm going to go back and edit it because I think that in and of itself reveals its authenticity. I don't want this podcast to be rehearsed and then overly edited, uh, certainly I will sometimes go back and edit out some ums and ahs that are overly distracting to the listener, and maybe I'll go back and edit out a, a burp or something that's, that's, again, distracting. But I want to be authentic when I record these podcasts because what it does, I think, is that it, it transmits that it's okay to be you. And being me is screwing up. Being me is laughing at myself. So uh, I think it, it, it is a little bit absurd when I when I ask these questions at the outset about authenticity, and then I, <laughs> I realized kind of how ridiculous it is, because they're all based on a presumption that the audience knows what I'm talking about. So for those of you who don't have any clue what I'm talking about, I'm going to start with a definition, and I just pulled this from the web off merriamwebster.com, because um, that's what good hacks on podcasts do is they just go they go to merriamwebster.com it's actually merriam-webster and uh and we use somebody else's definition so um the definition of authentic is uh worthy there's three actually there's one and then uh one a b and c and then two and then three so uh one a is worthy of acceptance or belief as conforming to or based on fact so there's the fact-based authentic that's you know observable and everybody can agree that it's not there's no there's no uh, 
disagreement. Uh, so if you if you paint an authentic picture of something, uh, you, you you've given all the facts. And so that's one A. One B is conforming to an original so as to reproduce essential features, meaning you're, you've got an authentic reproduction of of something. Uh, the example they give is an authentic reproduction of a colonial farmhouse. You're not going to have an authentic colonial farmhouse unless you go back to colonial days, but you can have an authentic reproduction. And you can conform to the original uh, very closely. So, And then 1C is made or done the same way as an original. So uh, authentic cuisine, and they use in here authentic Mexican fare. Uh, not F-A-I-R like a carnival, but F-A-R-E like, like a meal. Uh, the number two definition is not false or imitation. So in other words, real or actual. Uh, so an authentic Cockney accent is what they, they use here. Uh, so it's, a, it's a, a not false um, which can be hard to define. I'll get back to that in a minute. And then three, true to one's own personality, spirit, or character, meaning you're sincere and authentic with no pretensions. Now, if you've listened to the podcast about projections, uh, you can pretty quickly uh, draw the, the line that you realize that projections are in and of themselves not authentic unless you're projecting part of your true self. Now, that's a Jung, Carl Jung-based perspective on what authenticity means. And I understand that there's some disagreement about that, and we can have a great long debate about whether or not one has a true self and whether or not you're a divine creation of, of some you know mystical force or some godlike being that put us all here. Uh, I'm not interested in going there. What I am interested in is embracing the idea that we are all unique unto ourselves and that within that is an authenticity that can be achieved. Now, I don't know that there's an arrival point necessarily because if, if you're ever fully conscious, and I'll put, I'll put that in quotes, uh, if, you're ever, if you ever reach full consciousness, then you're aware of everything, which would put you on par with God. And I don't, I don't think that that's possible. I think we can only ever approach that. So keep that in mind as I, I continue this, this discussion about authenticity and how we know whether or not we're authentic or if we're derailing or if we're pretending. Uh, I, I mentioned I'd come back to not false. So I, I don't, as a, as a habit, like definitions that use negative terms. So number two in the definition of authentic on the merriam-webster.com is not false or imitation. Well, the reason I don't like nots is the same reason I don't like don'ts or can'ts or uh, shouldn'ts uh, in front of something. Because what it does is it draws the brain to the thing rather than the not thing. And let me explain. Clear your head for a moment and walk with me on this journey. Uh, I may have done this on a different podcast, but I'm not sure. So I'm just going to do it again. So clear your head for a second and imagine for me uh, just, just an empty slate. Now, Try really hard. Don't think about tigers. Don't think about their orange and black stripes. Don't think about Tony the Tiger. Don't think about Tiger Woods. Don't think about any any tigers at all. Did it work? And probably not. And and I've I've done this enough, and I've I've done this exercise with enough people to know that it didn't work. And you're probably still thinking of tigers. Um, so no matter how many times I say don't think of tigers you're going to have an image of a tiger because the brain simply doesn't process the negative in front of it. What our brains do is they latch onto the affirmative, and the affirmative is the tiger. Now, let's try this exercise again. Clear your head for a moment. I want you to think really, really hard about an elephant. Got it? Elephants, many elephants uh, roaming the, the desert, 
uh, kicking up dust across the Serengeti, their, their trunks, you know, flipping up and down. Maybe they're drinking water, their big ears flapping off the flies that try to land on them. They're, they're trumpeting sounds, big giant, you know, feet. Got the elephant. Okay. Where'd the tiger go? That's right. It's not there anymore. So the best way not to think about tigers is to think about anything but tigers. So think about an elephant. Think about your spouse. Think about the, the carpet beneath your feet if you're sitting on carpet or standing on it. If, if you're not, just look around you and think about anything but the tiger. What you don't want to do is put don't think about tigers because the first thing that will pop up is tigers. So when we go back to the definition of authentic, number two, it says not false. Well, if I'm trying not to be false, all I'm doing is drawing my brain toward imitation, falsehood, uh, or some other thing that distracts me from truth and authenticity. So I don't really like the definition, but I get what they're saying. And it's a workaround to say uh, definition number two of authentic is basically true or real. Uh, so I don't, I don't particularly like that they say not false, but we get what they're saying. So that it raises the question, though, of what is true? How do you know what true is um, other than it's not false? So we have to have some sort of barometer by which we can measure this. And I think that one very good use of this is simply other people who have known us for a very, very long time, or at least if not a long time, know us very, very well. So um, I, I have several people in my life I've known for 30 or more years, uh, and I just celebrated a 40th birthday. Um, yes, I am uh, approaching death, apparently. Uh, so, um, but I, some people in my life have known me literally for 40 years. Those would be my, my family members, my parents, you know, my aunts and uncles. So those people both know me very well and have known me very long uh, across a, a series of encounters and, and many years and circumstances and whatnot. Then there are the people I've known for a shorter period of time, say six, eight, ten years, and uh, that sounds long probably if you're, if you're young, if you're in your teenage years, and you think, well, 10 years is a long time to know somebody, uh, but not when you start to get older. But those people can know me very, very well. So my wife knows me very well. My best friends who I've picked up since, say, graduate school, I graduated in 2011 from grad school. That's, it's 2018 now. That's only seven, eight years ago. But they might know me very, very well through work environment and whatnot. What we can do is, is place those people around us, those quote-unquote trusted advisors, uh, so to speak, and we can bounce off of them whether or not they think we're being real. Now, I, just because somebody's known me a long time doesn't mean that they're necessarily a good uh, measure of, of who I am. But by and large, I think the people who've known us for a long time or the people who've been around us in some very intimate circumstances are going to be a good reflection of who we are, especially when we pull them together. We don't just take one person, our favorite person who always tells us what we want to hear, and use that person because that person may, may be misleading us for, for whatever reason. Um, you know, to make themselves comfortable or what have you. So I think one way of knowing what not false is or knowing, knowing what a true self is is to surround us with other people and ask them. And we have to be, again, we have to be authentic when we ask. We can't be pretentious and say, hey, uh, you know, uh, my wife's name is Heather. So you say, you know, hey, Heather, hey, babe, uh, tell, me, tell me that I'm being authentic. <laughs> like that's a, that's a loaded question. She's gonna be like, well, I, I guess you're being authentic. I don't, how would I know? Um, so you want to you, you want to phrase it in such a way that opens up the possibility that they can give you accurate feedback that may sting a little bit, but ultimately will be accurate in bringing you closer to what authenticity may be. Now let's go back to the stinging part. 
when someone gives feedback that stings a little bit, it hurts a little bit, it, it's a little bit of pain, that's an emotional response. And anybody who's listened to me for any length of time across any medium will know that I am a, a very big proponent of paying attention to one's emotions and knowing what they're trying to tell us. So pain would be associated with maybe fear and maybe sadness, you know, disappointment. If you hear something you don't like, like to hear, uh, it, it's going to give you feedback. So if it's, if it's scary, it may be that they're telling you something that you, you are afraid of because it means you have to let go of what you think you know about yourself in order to embrace something that you don't know. And that can be very scary because of the sheer uncertainty of it. Um, it may also threaten your ego identity, that which you've known very, very well for a very long time and have come to be very familiar with and like to hang on to. You may have to let go of that. And that's scary because it, it, it steps you out of your comfort zone. Um, it could be painful to hear. Uh, it could be very disappointing because you find out from a trusted advisor, you know, one of those people who's known you for a really long time or knows you very well, you find out that what they're seeing and what you're seeing are not the same. And that can be very disappointing. It can be, it can be very sad to, to understand or to, to hear feedback that the way you see yourself is just simply not accurate. That can be totally mind-blowing. It can, it can put you on your heels. It can rock you out of your world. And then third uh, is guilt and shame. You can, you can experience a little bit of both guilt and shame and or shame by hearing feedback that is not what you want to hear. It could be very uncomfortable. So if we remember the definitions of guilt and shame, uh, shame tells us that we failed to meet somebody else's expectations, and then guilt tells us to go make it right. Now, I know that there are some people out there, including my very good friend, uh, Dr. Christian Conti, uh, uh, Dr. Brene Brown, they... they uh, say that shame forward and shame backward are two different things, um, or, or in other words, guilt uh, says that you did something wrong and shame says that you are something wrong. And I'm, I'm not interested in going that direction or splitting hairs uh, because they're, they're both very accurate and I love those definitions. I'm just uh, picking the Carol Izzard definition of guilt and shame. So if I hear that, if I hear that feedback that says, uh, I failed to meet somebody's expectations yet internally in my own head, I thought I was doing the right thing all along. That can really hurt. Like that can, that can really bring a lot of shame. Uh, and unfortunately, hopefully guilt kicks in and says, well, well, how do I fix it? Well, that's where you get, you start to get closer to more authentic behaviors. When you honestly solicit feedback that says, how do I get better at this? That's the function of guilt, and that can bring you closer to being authentic. It can bring you closer to being true or, in other words, not false. And so number, th number three on the definition is true to one's own personality, spirit, or character. Well, how do you know what that is? Uh, religious types will say, you know, study the way that God writes in, you know, to man on his heart or, you know, how does, how does man's interpretation of God across time through scripture and literature uh, through practice, you know, through meditation, how, how does that echo with people? You know, how do you know what, what you are? Well, you can look to God and God is infallible and God is great and all that stuff. So that's, that's one way of doing it. It, it takes a, a lot of very hard work and a lot of careful discernment and, and evaluation. Another way of knowing what, who one's personality, spirit, or character is, is go back to those trusted advisors, the people who've known you for a really long time, and ask them, how was I as a child? Because I don't, I don't have great memories of me prior to, say, age, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And I certainly wasn't looking at myself critically back then because I didn't have the ability at that age because my, my brain simply wasn't developed enough. So I may remember my childhood as, you know, some happy-go-lucky, fun childhood. And, the, and my parents may say, actually, you weren't happy-go-lucky. You were, 
you were evaluative, you, you were investigating things, you were always curious, um, you always had questions, you couldn't shut up in class, which is true of me. Uh, you annoyed people with all your questions, also true of me. Uh, and, and so that may be giving me feedback too, where I now look at my life at 40 years old and I say, geez, you know, I still possess a lot of those qualities. I'm very curious, I'm very analytical, I do tend to challenge convention. Uh, I, I want to know how things work. I want to undo things and put them back together. I want efficiency. I want loyalty. And, and if I get that feedback from parents and friends and siblings and colleagues who have known me for a very long time, they go, yeah, you've always been that way. Well, now I'm starting to get a reflection of what my perhaps my true personality, spirit, or character is. So one way to do it is say, well, how did God make me to be? Another way to, to do it is say, how have, I, how have I changed across time? And then look at that in relation to what events may have transpired. And that could give me feedback as to what my, my real personality, spirit, or character is. I do have a, a longtime friend who I've known since uh, my, my very early college days who once told me that throughout all of life, we will have our ups and downs and we will change our personality quirks and traits. But ultimately, we all pretty much end up back the way that we were around 15 or 16 years old. And I thought, that's, that's pretty insightful. Um, it instantly resonated with me. And he told me this many years ago, and it's always stuck with me. And, and I think for the most part, it's, it's quite true, because I think at 15 or 16 years old, we, we still possess the innocence of childhood, where we can innocently explore things and ask questions and whatnot, while, uh, while we still have the, uh, the abstract thinking ability to uh, put things together and synthesize and that sort of thing. So I, I think that you know, as, as dynamics push us, you know, you go to college or you get hired by a different job and, you know, the boss makes you do certain things that maybe push you out of your own character. And then you wake up and you quit that job and you get one that's a little bit closer to who you really are. Or maybe you graduate college and you shake off the college experience and go, well, that wasn't really me for that, you know, four or five years. And, uh, and then eventually you return to where you were in say middle adolescence. I, I think that's a fairly good theory. It's based on nothing but personal experience. And so I don't, you know, I don't want anybody put a bunch of stake into it and and say that this is a be-all end-all but but it's it, I think it works. So these are all ways to know how you truly are as a human being and and I think that this process is such that as we continue to be authentic as we continue to grow in our own personal self-awareness as we continue to um be more who you know true to who we are the uh the closer we'll get to living it all the time. So the the frequency of pretending diminishes. We, we aren't pretending as often. And if we pretend, then we're not doing it as deeply. And I think over time, the, the episodes of, of us not being who we are uh, spread out and they become fewer and further between so that uh, over time, we just become more authentic. And I, th- I, I think if I were to venture a guess, you know, we tend to look at very old people, maybe in their seventies or eighties, and uh, you know, they, what do they do? They, they're very quiet. They don't. They don't express a lot of loud opinions. They listen to a lot of classical music. You know, <laughs> and um, and I think that the the reason for this is they've just figured out who they are, and it takes it takes many many years to get to that point. And you know, maybe biology aside, where the body you know slows down and cell regeneration isn't what it used to be, and people just generally get slower and more deliberate about what they do because it just takes more energy. I think that psychologically, if you if you get into the 70s or 80s, 
you've just kind of seen more stuff and and uh so maybe having loud music on the on the stereo isn't as entertaining as it once was you want to you want to be surrounded by peace and tranquility you're not interested in following every news cycle because you realize how hyperbolic it is and how things you know for for as much as they change they all stay the same uh, maybe you know you drive the nice car and wear the nice shoes because comfort matters more than uh, price tag. You know, for example, you're you're willing to pay more for for the things you really enjoy rather than experimenting with a bunch of new fashions or whatnot. You just you just know what you like and you stay with it. So I would ha- I would like to believe that people who are more advanced in age are probably closer to who they truly are than the rest of us who are in our you know 30s 40s uh, 50s even. And the way that we can accelerate that. If we go back to the the suggestions I made earlier, is surround ourselves with people we we know and trust, and who know us very well, and ask them to say, you know, do you think I'm being authentic? And and if they're honest with us, and if we're able to receive that honest feedback, they'll tell us, and and they may even give examples of moments in time when we weren't authentic. Hey, you know, you remember that time you. You know, you drank too much and threw up all over the, you know, the front steps. Uh, that that was not you. That's that was. I don't know what that was, but that was not you. Uh, that's not the you I know you to be. Or you know, hey, that time that you yelled and screamed and threw that glass across the room. Uh, you know, that wasn't you. Uh, that's that. So that's that. That's in you. You can do that, obviously, because you did it. But that's not who you are. Uh, that's just some episode. And similarly, you know, if somebody goes on a on a binge of say giving, charitable giving. I don't want to make this all negative. You know, you're just giving, 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 and then you just kind of wear out. Uh, maybe somebody comes to you and goes, you know, I, I understand that you were doing that, and it was it was very nice of you, but I don't think that's really who you are. Uh, you're not the you're not the giving all the time type. You you do like to be a giver, but not in that way, you know, or, or maybe, uh, you know, donating all your money isn't the way to do it. You're more of a service guy. You'd, you'd rather go serve people with your time and talents rather than your finances. And so maybe that feedback goes, Oh yeah, you're right. I, I am more of a service guy. I do, I do want to give my time and talents and not so much my finances. Um, that's somebody else, you know, somebody else does finances and not the time and talents kind of, kind of thing. So all these are clues to personality. They're clues to who you truly are. And again, I think it's something that we can only ever approach. I don't think we can ever land on it. Uh, because if we were to land on it, we would be so aware of who we are that we would know everything that there possibly is to know. And that would make us like you know the almighty which isn't possible and plus it would give us nowhere else to go what happens when you approach a full authenticity then what you know everything that there is to know about yourself but you still got time to walk out on the earth uh where does the self-exploration go from there um you know maybe just telling your own testimony to people in hopes that they can somehow reach their own inner uh, peace. But I, I just, I, it doesn't fit with me. And I, I would invite feedback and commentary on that. If, if you hear this and you're like, no, 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 I think you can t- absolutely re- reach, you know, full consciousness and be like Buddha, be like Jesus, you know, fully conscious uh, all the time of everything and, and walk it out in peace. And I'm, I'm just not sure of that. I, maybe we're so far away from uh, the original uh, creation of mankind that, um, that it just seems like it's harder to achieve. Maybe that's just my own blind spot. But I, I invite that feedback because I'd love to have a dialogue about this instead of just me droning into a microphone in my office, uh, hoping that it lands on somebody's ears <laughs> and it affects their life. So um, info at naganotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. 
please shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you about this topic because it fascinates me. And uh, with another uh, nod to uh, Christian Conti for giving me the idea, he he and I were talking the other day about, you know, what is authenticity and how do you know? And he's struggling uh, to write it concisely in a in a book. And um, and I was like, man, that's a really good question. I don't I don't know. All I can do is talk about it. I don't think I can talk to it or arrive at a conclusion. So. Together, hopefully, uh, collectively, as uh, you know, listeners of this show and, and um, practitioners in the field, we can eventually c- arrive at some semblance of what authenticity is, how to get more authentic, and, um, and ultimately be more at peace. And then, in that peace, we can show it to the world, and the world will, will be more at peace, too. So everybody we come in contact with will see us and go, wow, that, that guy really looks like he's got it together. How do I get some of that? And then, you know, maybe I share, I go, well, you know, I've surrounded myself with a lot of trusted people. I ask them all the time, but, you know, really the key is I have to be vulnerable enough to receive their feedback and approach that, that higher level of awareness, that higher level of consciousness. And it requires letting go. It requires tolerating fear. It requires receiving the guilt and shame. It requires, um, uh, accepting that I'm disappointed in myself, you know, that kind of thing. All those emotions that we talk about, they can be real big clues to getting closer to to full authenticity. So if you have questions or comments, please uh, please do let us know. Info at noggannotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. And that's going to do it for this week. I appreciate your listenership as I burp into the microphone. I'm not going to edit that out because, hey, that's authentically me. Um, but, uh, I do wish you all great mental wellness and on behalf of the Zephyr wellness family and the Naga notes team, have a very enjoyable week. I'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.